Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? Making my way the only way I know how, Leslie. Well, it's been a busy week, and before we get into this week's headlines, um, we do have some somber news to report. Yes, uh, it's just breaking as we record this, which is Thursday, that uh, Fred Silverman passed away. And if you are making a list of the great television executives basically ever, he would be very, very high on that list. He ran all three broadcast networks at one point or another, which is fairly remarkable. And the shows that he was associated with over that time is, well, basically any show you liked in the 60s or the 70s, the list would include things like uh, All in the Family, The Waltons, Charlie's Angels, Scooby-Doo, Really and truly, the too Jeffersons, many. Rhoda, Laverne and Shirley, Bionic Woman, Facts of Life. Too many to count, yeah. honestly. Um, and yeah, just basically one of the figures who shaped television as we know and understand it. So we wanted to make sure that we acknowledged his passing. Um, well, with all that going on, let's dive right into headlines, huh? What do you say, Dan? I get to do the first one because it makes me uncomfortable. In Netflix series pickup news, the streamer has announced that they are adapting the uh, manga hit One Piece as a live action series, and they ordered a family comedy starring Kat McPhee. Yay! And Eddie Cibrian. Uh, Seriously, I I don't understand why all of my favorite people at some point have to share a sitcom or a television show with Eddie Cibrian. It feels entirely unfair to me, but what can you do? I will be watching that show, and I look forward to reviewing it. Anyway, that's not the only stuff that Netflix ordered, uh, because they're teaming with Julie Delpy uh, for a dramedy series in which she will star and write uh, called On the Verge. She, of course, was nominated for an Oscar as part of the writing team on the various Before movies. So good on her. In Apple series orders, the tech giant has landed a fantasy comedy series starring Cecily Strong. That will be executive produced by Saturday Night Live mastermind Lauren Michaels. Elsewhere, a Rose Byrne aerobics dramedy is in the works also at Apple. Had me at Rose Byrne's aerobic dramedy. Uh, also, and how does... Rose Byrne, honest, honestly, every network and streamer has been trying to get her to do TV for years. So, How does the Cecily Strong, Lauren Michaels thing not go to Peacock is the only thing I'm wondering. You That's a great question. But this one's been in the works for a long time. Um, she's going to shoot it during her hiatus from SNL, following the same kind of trajectory as A.D. Bryant, what she's done with Shrill for two seasons there. But yeah, Lorne Michaels already has he has another show that's in, in the works at Peacock and, you know, he's got stuff all over the place. He's busy um, over at ABC, the network, which uh, you tell me typically doesn't hand out straight to series orders. Yeah, it's typically reserved for summer and and 
Canadian acquisitions. Has done just that for a female-driven cop drama from iconic producer David E. Kelly. If you like David E. Kelly, and you know, he's done a few shows here and there, you should go back to our September 13th episode and listen to our showrunner spotlight interview with him, which is honestly still one of our favorites. Yeah, he was incredibly forthcoming. Like Dan said, one of our favorite interviews. Over in exec news, Stars programming chief Carmi Zlotnick has exited after a decade run at the premium cable network. And two days after announcing his departure there, set up shop at Apple as a producer where he will reunite with former HBO CEO Richard Plepler. And speaking of stars, the premium cabler has ordered comedy Run the World, starring Amber Stevens West and from the creator of Living Single. On the overall deals front, uh, Julie Pleck, another TV's top five showrunner spotlight favorite, Queen of the Vampires, has moved her overall deal from Warner Brothers to Universal TV. Crazy ex-girlfriend co-creator Eileen Brush McKenna has moved from CBS TV Studios to ABC. Uh, while Jessica Beale has moved from Universal Content Productions to Paramount TV Studios, just in time for the end of BoJack Horseman featuring Jessica Beale. As we would say, unbelievable. And finally, Will Ferrell's Gloria Sanchez, which uh, produces Dead to Me for Netflix, has signed a first look pack with the streaming giant. And over on the scrap heap, Marvel has axed two of its four animated comedies that were set up at Hulu, Tigra and Dazzler, which we previously reported had shut down production in the midst of a creative overhaul, and Howard the Duck. Neither one of those two will be moving forward. Also dead at Hulu and Marvel is the mashup called The Offenders, which was going to be a nod to The Defenders from Netflix. It's kind of this whole animated universe was kind of done and created with that similar thinking of four shows with a, with a mashup at the end. So now it's two shows with no mashup. And finally, for lovers of daytime soaps, NBC has officially renewed Days of Our Lives for a 56th season, and CBS has handed out a four-season renewal for Young and the Restless, taking it through 2024. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, Dan, the biggest TV is around the corner. Super Bowl 54 takes place on Sunday. The 49ers take on the Chiefs. Fox will air the game with the masked singer getting the best time slot of the year and kicking off its third season immediately after the game ends. As a reminder, Dan, last year's snooze fest, and I think you have comments about that as a Patriots fan, saw the Patriots beat the Rams in a whopping score of 13 to 3. The ratings, of course, fell to a 10 year low, but the big game still delivered 98.2 million total viewers. This is the biggest TV day of the year. Um, as for what came after the game, the best time slot of the year went to a CBS unscripted competition show called World's Best, which is likely not returning for another season. That delivered 22.2 million total viewers. And again, proving that even if you air after the big game, it doesn't guarantee success. Man, you could have given me 15 guesses. And I would not have been able to tell you what aired after the Super Bowl last year. You could have given me 30 guesses. You could have told me what the name of the show was that aired after the Super Bowl last year. And I could not have told you what that show actually was. Man, I have a confession to make, Dan. You loved that show. (laughs) I had to Google it. I looked it up. I didn't remember. (laughs) Okay. wow. It's still, you know, it's the conversation we have every year, whether we should be excited by the show that airs after the Super Bowl. And the answer is maybe sometimes we should, but sometimes it's really, really forgettable. I'm also going to say that last year's Super Bowl was a one possession game until deep in the fourth quarter. If you can't appreciate that as a football game then you just don't like football, which is totally fine. In any case, though, it was a good game. It wasn't really a good game. It was a defensive game. It was a close game. It was a competitive game. 
I don't know. I grew up when the 49ers were winning Super Bowls by 30 and everyone was like, ah, oh, the commercials are better than the Super Bowl. And I love those games. I, I was also a big 49er fan growing up. So I loved watching Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Ronnie Lott. I mean, that was a hell of a team. I don't disagree. I was I, I was stop. True story. I stopped following football the minute Joe Montana got traded to the Chiefs. Well, they were still a fun team when they had Steve Young, a quarterback. Also, yes. Uh, as as I was born in the Bay Area and bounced around until I hit New England to a lot of places that didn't necessarily have football teams, I rooted for those 49ers teams as well. And sure, why not? But anyway, those were not good football games. Last year's game was a close game. Eh, probably more I'll fun. I'll take a high-scoring game over a defensive game any day. Entirely fair. Home uh, runs are more fun to watch than strikeouts. Unless it's Clayton Kershaw. Then okay, but are home runs more fun to watch than actual baseball where people sometimes hit singles, sometimes steal bases, sometimes bunt? I love small ball, but it's just one facet of the game. Oh, my God. We just lost half of our audience, and I am so sorry. What else do we want to talk about the Super Bowl on Sunday? Well, the commercials. Um, obviously, this is a big exposure for a lot of brands. A 30-second ad this year costs $5.6 million. That's up from $5.2 million last year. And as our colleague Pam McClintock reported, many movie studios are sitting out this year because of the rising costs. <sighs> and it just means that all we're going to do is have the exact same conversation on Monday that we have at this point literally every year where we wonder why the commercials weren't as good as they were in our childhood because there were five commercials we remembered from our childhood spread out over 20 Super Bowls. Um, it's a little bit like the way we remember those early seasons of SNL as being so wonderful because we remember 10 great sketches and we don't remember how much filler was in every single episode of SNL unless you watch a full uninterrupted episode. Anyway, also, these are commercials. Nothing annoys me more leading up to the Super Bowl than the annual watch the Super Bowl commercials ahead of time to remind you these are advertisements ads and we're <laughs> writing stories like watch this ad like we're writing up commercials it's amazing these are ads and if you've already seen them you've taken away the thing that you 10 minutes ago said was allegedly your favorite part of watching the Super Bowl why would you want to do that why would you want to intentionally afflict upon yourself multiple repetitions of bad commercials I don't know. Baffles I mean, me. honestly, the one thing that I always remember from Super Bowl Sundays from during my time as a reporter is some of the news that breaks during the game. I mean, I remember CBS famously had a Super Bowl commercial in which they announced that The Good Wife would end. And there was the Cloverfield movie the year before that, that, that where it suddenly came out of nowhere and Netflix is like, yeah, you can also just watch this Cloverfield sequel. Like, okay. Immediately after the game ends, it's right here on Netflix. That was one of the most savviest moves that I've ever seen, where a, a streamer used a broadcast network to basically pull people away. And <laughs> it's incredible. Is definitely funny. Uh, what else is there to discuss? Well, um, there will be the halftime show, which will feature Jennifer Lopez and Shakira. That is... Bound to be at least somewhat high energy. Um, do we know who's singing the national anthem this year? I won't even I won't even ask you because it'll be a pleasant surprise. I think it'll be interesting to see on a, on a more somber note uh, how they the Super Bowl handles uh, the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and seven others and a helicopter accident last week. It, it seems as if this is something that is well, it doesn't seem as if it is. It is something that goes well beyond 
the world of simply basketball and has affected the world of sports and pop culture as well. And I assume there will be a moment of silence. I'd and, be surprised if there wasn't. Yeah. So they will. I, I would be surprised, honestly, if there isn't even more than that. I would given given how the Grammys, which admittedly were on the same day, but still and literally across from Staples Center. But they still became basically a, a Kobe Bryant memorial start to finish. I assume it will be more than just a simple moment of silence, but that will be a thing that is interesting to see. So yes, that is that is the thing that people will be talking about TV-wise as we head into the weekend. So that was our number one story for the week. Yeah, which takes us to our next topic. Up next, True Detective creator Nick Pizzolatto is on the move. Number two. So what does that mean? Well, three seasons of the HBO anthology aired and two overall deals. Pizzolatto has departed the premium cable network and has signed with Disney-owned Fox 21 and FX Productions. As part of that big deal, he has landed a script-to-series order for a drama called Redeemer based on Patrick Coleman's novel The Churchgoer with a familiar face set to star, Matthew McConaughey, who was, of course, the star of season one of True Detective. So the big question, of course, from this one is, what does this mean for the future of that anthology? Well, sources tell me that HBO continues to own that show, True Detective, and remain open to doing this for another season with a different writer taking the place of Pizzolatto, which would be super interesting, Dan. I mean, what do you think of this move? Would you watch True Detective from a different writer with a different perspective? Well, Sure, but at that point, I would also watch a show that wasn't called True Detective from a writer with a different perspective. Like, you could have called The Outsider True Detective The Outsider, and people would have been like, sure, yeah, that's a True Detective season. Why not? So if you accept that the brand True Detective at this point basically and exclusively means a really, really solemn, washed-out mystery, which is pretty much what Pizzolatto himself turned it into, then... Sure, great. Give me more of it. Or alternatively, give me something from a creator that isn't called True Detective. I just I don't understand what the brand is if the brand is not Nick Pizzolatto. And that's perfectly OK if the brand happens to no longer exist. I, I'm not going to get worked up if there isn't a fourth season of True Detective. There was one very good season of True Detective, one awful season of True Detective and one OK season of True Detective. So... Whatever. It's not it's not like it's a brand that has a 20 year established run of quality where we need to protect it against all costs and the brand must live on. Whatever. But it but it is still a brand and we are still in a landscape that features 530 scripted originals and counting. So one of them should be called True Detective at all times. But when you have something that automatically has is somewhat synonymous with quality and awards recognition, there's definitely an incentive to keep something like that alive, at least from a network standpoint and a marketing standpoint. And do we have any timetable of when this is actually going to happen? Like Matthew McConaughey is a relatively busy man. Yes, but it, we should note, like I said, it, it is a script to series order. So what that means is that if FX and Fox 21 executives are happy with the script, Pizzolatto turns in, then it would trigger a series order. And look, FX takes a very slow and nuanced and particular approach to development. Look at the trajectory of Why the Last Man. They, you know, even with a great comic book and behind it and you know what the show is, they did a script order and then it was a pilot order and then they cast it. And then, you know, like they take a very particular approach because they're investing this money. They want to get it right. Because look, you know, as we know, FX is almost synonymous with quality, too. They they try to be, and but That's still in all, they... they as, Landgraf, as Landgraf said in our podcast a couple of weeks ago, brand matters. But they probably still would very much like to have a Matthew McConaughey TV series on air, because who would not want to have that? 
Right. And that's if it, of course, does wind up airing on FX. It could just as easily be an FX on Hulu show, which is the same thing. But in just, you know, you don't have linear to deal with. So. You should definitely go back and listen to our chat with John Langraff as he attempts to explain what any of that will mean as we ourselves express some concern about the FX brand. But he's not worried. So I guess yeah. we shouldn't be either. That would be from our January 10th episode this year. Yeah. Well looked up. Um, well, up third, it's been a big week for animation. Number three. Excellent. I'm going to read all of the things that happen in animation, and then you can tell me why they're all important. Actually, I know why one of the things is important. BoJack Horseman is ending its run uh, this week. You'll be able to hear lots, lots more about that in our showrunner spotlight. Up next, yep. Indeed. And the streamer is continuing to invest in the space and has signed a big overall deal with the animation studio Titmouse. Hee <laughs> The company that does the physical animation for the excellent Big Mouth and another of its upcoming comedies. Speaking of Titmouse, T, the company has landed a two-season order at Amazon for animated comedy Fairfax about L.A.'s famed Fairfax district, which is described as, quote, the pulsing heartbeat of hype beast culture. I'm not sure what that is, but that's the logline that Amazon provided. Is that a new euphemism for Jewish? I'm very confused. No. Have you been? Have you driven down Fairfax recently, man? When There's, was the last time you went to Cantor's? It's been a while. Drive I, down there, man. And it's uh, whatever hype beast culture is. That's what it is. I don't know. Does it involve all the people standing in line for like new new sneakers? It oh does. my god, it's going to be so old. Anyway, it does. <sighs> it's a, it, but look, if you drive, it's, it's an incredible like. Just as someone who grew up in in Los Angeles and lived in this area and lived near Fairfax and would routinely go to Cantor's and I still do, but I grew up going to Cantor's and, and seeing how that neighborhood has changed is completely fascinating. So this is interesting to see that it'll be for me, it, it'll be cool to see how they bring that to life for animation. And for me, it'll be interesting to say Titmouse again. I'm shaking my head, Dan, every time you laugh, you can feel free to giggle along with me. Anyway, speaking of Amazon, Wait, did we speak about Amazon? Yes, we did, because Titmouse <laughs> did a series for them. Uh, the streamer is teaming Oy with... Oy vey, Dan. Oy vey. <laughs> See, that's my Fairfax district, Leslie. <laughs> Speaking of Amazon, the streamer is teaming with Maya Rudolph and Natasha Leone for the animated sci-fi comedy The Hospital about two female alien doctors. So, okay, break down why this week's animation news is important to the kids at home. I will only do that if you stop doing teehee every time I say titmouse. Tee. All right, Dan, I'm doing it anyway. So, look, animation we've talked about, you know, here and there on the podcast, but it's a huge business right now because of the way these animated comedies perform on streaming platforms. Rick and Morty, Family Guy are two of the most watched acquired shows that stream on Hulu. Netflix has had great success with BoJack Horseman and Big Mouth. But, you know, of all these, you know, look, there's two big show pickups, one one of them for two seasons. But it's the Titmouse deal that, that I find interesting. You know, Netflix last year opened up its own in-house animation studio. And what that means is that instead of having to send out physical animation to be done and outsource it to another company, which is an expensive and time-consuming process, they're kind of following the, the model that Rick and Morty set up where the animation and the writing is done under the same roof. So you get a better result creatively and financially. And obviously from the success that Rick and Morty has had, you can see the results there. So what this this first look deal means for Titmouse and Netflix is that, <laughs> God damn it, Dan, is that they I gave can, you one free where I didn't do it. I hope you appreciated it. Well, what it means, this is me ignoring you. What it means is that Netflix can use this company to animate any number of projects. This company can also 
create new concepts and go straight to series at Netflix. It breaks down that wall. And now you've got Amazon using them as well. So it's basically Netflix saying, we know you're going to start blowing up. We know your calendar is going to get full. We want it all that time. It's this, it's kind of, to me, the equivalent of Netflix buying up all the billboards for advertising so that NBC can't use billboards on Sunset because Netflix bought 30 of them or, or whatever one, it is like that. There is one corner of Venice that I drove by the other day that has five billboards for Hunters Up within eyesight. It is a remarkable thing. I've never seen anything like it, which has nothing at all to do with the animated space, but definitely has to do with a lot of billboards for Hunters. I mean, it, it's also there's also one intersection. I think I want to say it's like Olympic and La Cienega where there's this is a very L.A. thing. So apologies to our, our listeners who are not in uh, in my hometown. But there's this one intersection in L.A. where it's you can see an ad, a billboard for Netflix, for Hulu and Amazon while you're stopped at the, at the light. It's incredible. Huh. See, I, I like that. That would make me feel equilibrium as opposed to an excessive number of hunters. Billboards. Yeah. But back on track now, animated shows are cheaper to produce than scripted live action dramas and comedies. And in success, when you look at a show like Bob's Burgers, which is a huge success, you can wind up turning that into a multi-billion dollar franchise. So look at The Simpsons, look at Family Guy. Those are both multi-billion dollar franchises because you've got merchandising and you've got obviously SVOD rights are, are a part of that. But video games and comic books and T-shirts and games and just it becomes a brand. And when you can take that shot with an animated comedy for not a lot of money, the upside is tremendous. So that, that's why I'm, I'm specifically interested in, in, in the animation space right now. And you're seeing a ton of growth on the specifically on streamers and, and at Fox, because I think Fox as the network knows that, you know, Family Guy and Bob's Burgers and, and The Simpsons aren't going to be around forever because those are now extremely expensive shows to, to license and they don't own them anymore. We discussed some of this in one of our showrunner spotlights that isn't going to go up until this summer, but we had a great conversation about it. So that's a little tease I'll spoil for like it now. June. I'll spoil it. It's with Lauren Bouchard, who is the creator of Bob's Burgers, and it's pegged to Central Park, the animated comedy that Apple picked up straight to series with a two-season order. We've seen the first two episodes, Dan. I laughed a lot. It's great. I did as well, but guess what? That's not until the summer, and we have another animated showrunner spotlight right now. Number four. In this week's Showrunner Spotlight, we're paying tribute to the end of one of the best shows of the past decade with Raphael Bob Waxberg, creator and showrunner of Netflix's BoJack Horseman, which released the last eight episodes of its sixth and final season on January 31st. In addition to the beloved Hollywood satire slash animated exploration of trauma and depression, Bob Waxberg executive produced Netflix's Tuca and Birdie and executive produces and co-created Amazon's Undone. Welcome, Raphael. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. What a treat. <laughs> a treat and a half. So, okay, we are recording this two days before the finale is released. And I guess I'm curious, it's sort of a big nebulous question, but how are you How are you feeling with the end in sight, with this moment approaching? I feel good, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I um, maybe it hasn't hit me yet. You know, maybe I'm still in denial, but I feel like... On the other side of it, this has been so long in coming. I feel like I've I've gone through all my stages of grief and, and landed pretty firmly at acceptance. You know, there was the conversation of like, oh, we're we're ending the show. And then how do we end the show? And then, oh, that was my last day with the writers. And, oh, that was my last record session with Aaron Paul. That was my last record session with Will Arnett. Oh, this was my goodbye to the animators. This was our last sound mix. 
And so now it feels like, oh, the show's still happening? Like, <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's been done. Um, but I'm sure once it drops, and I, I, I mean, even now, just as the, the reviews have started coming in and seeing other people kind of deal with the end of it, there is like an, another hit of like, oh, yeah, it's it's over. Oh, right. And so... We'll, we'll see what this weekend has in store for me emotionally. Are you going to be on Twitter basically following the entire world to see what people are saying? Or are you going to drop off specifically so as not to see those things? Oh, I'm sure I'll be reading everything. <laughs> I mean, I, I I would like to think that I won't, but I always do. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be deep in it. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Um Back in September when um, I reported that the show was coming to an end, at the time, sources told me that it was always your plan to end this and to have the show run for six seasons. Yeah, I don't know what source told you that. Okay, so <laughs> thank you. Knowing that animated comedy is in success, like yeah. Family Guy, The Simpsons become multi-billion, I just want to say that again, multi-billion dollar franchise. Talk about, like, was it your decision to end this show? No. Was this a ne- okay, <laughs> so here we go. So what happened? Was this a Netflix you know, kind of, well, they, hey, you they, got they past our four ones, season limit. They? They, um, yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I think BoJack has achieved some amount of success, but we've never been a multi-billion dollar uh, Well, yeah, I mean, I'm comparing it to shows that have run on, right. like, how many episodes of The Simpsons now? Like yeah. 600? I mean, although Family Guy also got canceled, so. Twice. Right? <laughs> so I guess we'll see what the future has in store for us. Um, no, but I mean, I think BoJack feels like a different kind of show. I mean, narratively, it couldn't go on forever. I mean, there's something nice about ending the story here and feeling, you know, like we're leaving people wanting more and feeling like we had to had some control over the ending and we're not extending it unnecessarily. It was not my decision, but it's a decision that I feel good about now. I feel like it's nice to think that we have this book ended series that feels like we've told the complete story. So from a yeah, from from a creative standpoint, I'm not mad at it. Although it was it was not always my plan to do six seasons. I don't I don't know how that rumor got started. So this was Netflix coming in and saying, hey, your show has gotten quite expensive and it doesn't bring us the same number of new subscribers yeah, as whatever, say something whatever, flashy and new does. You know, whatever math they did to decide that we don't want this anymore, um, they did it. But, you know, they, I think they were really kind about it. Uh, you know, and I do think it's a show they're proud of. And I, I'm proud of my partnership with them. And, and they gave me the notice of, you know, maybe you want to start wrapping things up this season. It wasn't like, why don't you set up a big cliffhanger? And then, oh, by the way, you're not coming back. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful to them for, for giving me that runway and being communicative in that way. Is that part of why the final season was split in two? It's part of it. I think, yes, I, I think to give us more room to write an ending, uh, we did 16 instead of 12. And then because we were doing 16 and, you know, Netflix generally releases all their episodes at once, we didn't want to wait until all the episodes were done to release them because then we'd be getting 16 episodes now. And we didn't want fans to have to wait a year and a half between seasons. So by, by splitting it up that way, we could get the first eight out before the second eight were finished. And still have ample time to stick the landing. And still have ample time to stick the landing. And I also narratively, I like what it did to the season too. I think it helped me creatively in ways I couldn't have anticipated. So I, I think it's been, it's been, and it's been nice to kind of, again, have a longer runway to end things, to feel like we have these two chunks and it's not just, oh, by the way, it's over now. So I think it's been, it's been really nice. I'm, I'm really happy with how we've ended this, this series and how we've been allowed to end the series. I'm not sure if there's a good answer for this and I'm not sure if there's a good answer when it's a fictional character. I'm not sure if it's, there's a good answer when it's a fictional character who's a talking horse. But when you were having conversations about heading towards the end, how much was the conversation about what 
in terms of an ending and a conclusion Bojack, quote unquote, deserves as a character? There was definitely conversation around that. I mean, there was, you know, a conversation like, what do we as the creators and also fans of the show, like what, what, what do we want to see happen to him? What do we think realistically would happen to him? You know, what are we, what are we saying to our audience with what happens to him? You know, what do we owe the character? You know, what do we owe him as a symbol for a certain kind of toxic male celebrity? Yes, there were a lot of conversations and I, I, I don't know if we necessarily landed on definitive answers um, because for me, one of the joys of the show has been about not finding easy answers and about asking these questions. And so, you know, every time that we've had a conversation in the room where I felt like a certain way and someone else has felt a different way. And then by the end of the conversation, I become less convinced. And I think, well, but we have to, we have to have a conclusion. Otherwise, what are we going to do with this story? And we've kind of landed on like, well, what if, you know, what if we leave things as messy as we feel they are and try to be honest to that messiness? I think it's worked for the show. And so I think we, in our last eight episodes, we really tried to honor that as well without feeling like we're, we're dodging questions or taking easy way outs. We felt like maybe prescribing things too cleanly or, or definitively was a different kind of easy way out. Well, what, like, what are the sides of that conversation? Are there people who think that the things that Bojack has done are too bad and the, there must be consequences? And then are there people who really, really wanted a happy ending, even if it wasn't necessarily what the show has been building to for six plus years? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, in some ways, because we talk a lot about, you know, every time there is some, you know, fall from grace of, of some celebrity. I mean, fall from grace even is not the right way to put it because that sounds like, oh, they fell from grace. You know, the, 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 the fancies of the universe conspired to, you know, trip them up when it's really, it's like they're usually brought down because of their own behavior. But, you know, whenever someone uh, goes on one of these apology tours or, you know, or what I call the I said I'm sorry tours, I always look at that and I think like that's not the right way to do it. And so there is a temptation of like with this character like, oh, let's show how I would, you know, what, what I would want to see from one of these guys. But then the other side of it, like, but would Bojack do it the right way? And is that realistic? And, and, and you know, why would we suddenly make Bojack a role model when he's not? And we, we've been, I think, very clear about that. Uh, and so there's there's a desire to kind of, yeah, beat a new path forward and also just narratively to not tell a story that we've seen before in the real world over and over again. And is it going to feel boring if he just does all the things that all of these other celebrities do already? And so we are kind of juggling, yeah, our, our, our creative desires and, and, you know, how we feel about the character and what we want to see happen to him. And then also what we feel is like our responsibility too and that there are i know there are people who relate to bojack on certain levels uh in some ways that i think are maybe healthy and 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 helpful to you know for self-reflection and in, in some ways that i think are maybe dangerous and and indulgent and so do we think about those people when crafting an ending for bojack and what is our responsibility to those people or people who may have grafted themselves onto this character here's a story <laughs> not about bojack uh if, if you can if you'll indulge me it's about television that's what we're here for but but especially when thinking about endings you know how do you end a show and i don't know i mean i guess i just i did it and people will judge for themselves if i did it correctly but think back to like my 
favorite shows ending, like I'm almost always disappointed. And usually <laughs> that has less to do with the way they chose to end the show and more just that like, I'm sad that this show is ending and that makes me angry. And so I think, oh, this show did a shitty job of ending their show. You know what I mean? And so if I'm being, now that I've ended it, I'm ended my own show, I'm a little more generous. I'm like, well, maybe maybe all those endings weren't terrible. Except, for, was, except for Lumberjack Dexter. Right, that it was just hard for me to say goodbye. Yeah. But you know, what, one example of a show that had a, a, a very controversial ending was How I Met Your Mother. And I can just speak personally to that, that one of the reasons that ending was difficult for me, um, and I think it's okay to spoil that show at this point, right? <laughs> like, if, if you're still working your way through it. I believe we've now given a proper, a proper buffer. There's your spoiler warning. Skip, skip the next few right? minutes. Right, but so the, the, the premise of How I Met Your Mother as a TV show is, is that uh, the character of Ted is telling his children the story of how he met their mother. Literally the name of the, the show. The name of the show, right? And, and part of the, the twist of the pilot episode and you know the first few seasons even is that is that uh, at first you think the mother is Robin, and then they break up, and then he he continues to date other people and have various misadventures, and then in the end he he meets the mother, uh, and then the the conclusion to the series is that after the mother dies, he ends up back together with Robin, and this ending I found very offensive to me personally. Um, <laughs> Not because of the show, I realized later. It was because I was single at the time when I was watching this show. And I had ex-girlfriends in my life who I thought of as like the ones who had gotten away. And I actually, without even realizing it, I'd grafted onto Ted and found great hope and optimism in the idea that I still had a great love to come. And the res resolution of the series being that no, actually his true great love was the one he'd already met, I found very depressing because I didn't want to feel like I'd already missed my chance with my one great love, that there was still someone out there for me. And I remember talking to my friend uh, Caroline about this and complaining about this ending and being like, you know, because what this means is that like, it's hopeless for me. And she said, no, <laughs> your situation has nothing to do with the show. <laughs> Ted being with Robin or Ted being with Tracy has no bearing on whether you're going to meet somebody else or get back together with one of your exes whatsoever. And I was like, oh, you're right. That, and so I, I, that's a long way of saying that I think there are people who have grafted onto our characters and will feel certain things that the show is saying about them personally. And you have to be like somewhat aware of that when crafting an ending, while also knowing that like you can't really control that. And your first responsibility is to the characters as you see them and, and to the show and the story that you're telling. So with that in mind, I mean, that's a great story, too, but because it's like we all want to look at and find a reflection of ourselves on TV. And then you're upset when it doesn't end the way that right. gives you hope or makes you feel good because you're literally watching a version of who you are. Yeah. Um, but with all that in, in mind, you know, two things I was thinking about big animated shows that came to an end and I was really struggling to come up with one. What did you look to in the animated space as you applauded the series finale here? And, and in a larger sense, without revealing any spoilers for our listeners who haven't seen it yet, what do you hope viewers take away thematically from that finale? Well, I'll answer your first question first. What do we look to in the animated space? Not much. Yeah. Um, because there are, 
I mean, there are other shows that that do similar things to what we're doing, but I mean, but most animated shows that you think of when you think of adult animation are very status quo centric, non-serialized, episodic. Um, so, you know, episode 172 looks the same as episode eight. Right. Right. So they're not, you know, crafting these these large arcs uh, and building t- towards some sort of ending. Our show is very serialized um, and that, you know, I think is one of the things that has set us apart from other animated shows is that there is a, a longer story. And, you know, it was one of the reasons that I think it would be difficult to get to 172 episodes uh, because it does feel like we're, we're, we're building to something and moving forward. So, you know, more I was thinking about live action finales and how really more dramas than comedies have kind of wrapped up their their shows and what they say about their characters and the worlds um, and what we wanted to say about our characters and their worlds. What do I want audiences to be left with? I think it's uh, too early to say. You know, I, 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 I want them to see it and judge. I don't want someone to listen to this interview and go, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be left with? Well, now I'll watch and I'll see if I'm left with that. You know, like I, I'm curious what the reactions will be. Um, and I'm excited to read those reactions. And I'm, I'm tentative about putting my finger on the scale at this point or, or, or defining what the ending means for me because it, it is very clear what it means to me. But I also think there is enough nuance and ambiguity there that the different people will, will get different things from it. And I guess what I would want or what I would advise is for people to understand that it is open to interpretation. So if you don't like it, just interpret it the other way <laughs> and maybe you'll like it. You'll like it better. Well, okay. So along those lines, talking about making the fans happy, there's obviously a sort of fan service aspect to any final stretch of episodes mm-hmm. as you approached it. Were there specific characters you wanted to bring back? Were there specific plot points you wanted to make sure got addressed, you know, because you knew people on Twitter would be like, what about dot, 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 you know, why did you not mention dot, dot, dot? Why was there no Vincent adult man cameo, et cetera? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was there was definitely a list of st- I mean, there's never a physical list, but like in my head, there's like a list of stuff that I felt like let's let's try to circle back to as many of these things as we can, but also not wanting to hit everything because you don't want you know your final lap to feel like a series of check marks like oh hit that one hit that one hit that one boom 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 done done done, and so there are characters who don't return that I think people will be disappointed by like oh I was hoping to see what happened to that person and I think it's kind of nice to be like you don't know. What, what do you think happened? Um, and there are other ones that I think people will be delighted and surprised. Like, oh, this, you know, this, this came back for one, you know, one more go round. And I think a lot of people, there's a crossword puzzle. That's all I'm saying in the clo- in the home stretch that I think addresses like a half dozen things that people will want to see. Yes, if you pause. <laughs> which if you pause will give you the closure you yes, want. There's definitely, there are definitely a lot of that in the last few episodes of like, you know, background newspaper headlines and billboards and like certain clues as to what has happened to some of the other characters that that didn't get space in in the uh, episodes proper. Well, along those lines, you guys have specifically made jokes in some episodes about the tendency of fans to stop the narrative flow of episodes mm-hmm. to pause things. Have you kind of made peace with that over the past few years, that that's just something that happens? Well, I love it. I okay. mean, I'd say the opposite <laughs> of made peace with it. Like, I, I mean, I... We like to joke about it, but it's, I think it's definitely a feature, not a bug of the show. And, and we, we put stuff in with the intention that people aren't going to catch this the first time and you need to like go back a second time and, 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 and watch it over and over again. I mean, we, we want the show to reward multiple viewings. And so 
there is stuff, you know, both very obvious of like, oh, foreshadowing or like callbacks or things that you just might not catch the first time or background gags. But then also there's like heavy, like emotional stuff that like, oh, he says this thing that feels like a throwaway joke in one episode, but eight episodes later in a flashback, we see that's because like his mother said a similar thing to him when he was younger and that kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily get at first. And so, I mean, I love that the fans love to get into it and take it apart because it is a show that is built for that. It's, it's you know, we, we joke that like sometimes, yeah, a coffee cup is just a coffee cup, but a lot of times it's not. I mean, and, and there's stuff there in by design that is meant to be analyzed. There's also stuff that we put in where we don't know the answer, where we, 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 we like, oh, this is a weird kind of thing. Let's just like sprinkle that in and let people analyze it and see what they come up with, right? And there's stuff where like, Something happens and I know why I think it happened, but it's not obvious when watching the show. And so people have to come to their own conclusions. And I, I like that. And, you know, because we're in this PTV world where nothing that has any kind of value, to, whether it be to a streamer or to critics, ends without another life to it. Have you thought about spinoffs or well, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're going to do Todd Camino in five years with Aaron <laughs> Paul. Um, no, I I. I I mean, right now, that is not a thing that is interesting. I mean, you know, you're talking to me right as it's ending. I'm not thinking about what's the next chapter. Like I, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm really glad Netflix gave us the runway to, to end it in a way that I think is proper. I'm excited to see what else is out there. I, I'm, I'm, you know, there, there are more stories I, I could have told in this world, but I also am looking forward to the stories I can tell now that are not in this world that wouldn't have, have made sense in, in this milieu. And so I'm, I'm not eager to necessarily revisit the, the the world of BoJack Horseman, although I, I will say that uh, Michael Eisner, who, who whose company Toronto I make the show with, um, he's very excited about the prospect of a BoJack Broadway musical. Which the first time he brought it up, I you know completely dismissed him. And then walking back to my car, I was like, well, I guess this is the guy who put The Lion King on Broadway, so maybe he knows what he's talking. <laughs> maybe he knows what he's doing. But I I don't know what that would look like or what what that would ever be. Um, so, yes, there might be more life for some of these characters in some capacity. But right now, I like feeling like like this, the book is closed. We have a beginning, middle and end. And, and this is the, the saga of BoJack Horseman. Clearly, it would look like War Horse on Broadway. Yes, exactly. And they, since I was rewatching the pilot last night, uh -huh. I know that he laments that he didn't get cast in the War Horse movie. That's true. So. Maybe he could. Uh, it's right there, man. He could, he could be the War Horse on Broadway. Be very appropriate. Now, I want to go back a little bit. I've talked to you about this before, but the listeners may not have been in the room when that happened. The initial round of reviews for the show after season one were based off of an initial group of five or six episodes. Yeah. And they were positive, but not rapturous. And yeah. then suddenly over the next couple of years, it became a show that ended the decade on many, many, many top 10 lists. How do you look back at those initial reviews and how do you look back at the satisfaction of the shift? in response from people mixed. I, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So I, I think the, I think my, you know, my uh, initial feelings of, uh, vindication <laughs> and feeling like, yeah, I was right and they were wrong <laughs> might have been overstatements. And, and, and I think that, you know, I think with any new show, there is a learning curve of like trying to, you gotta teach the audience how to watch it. You gotta, you gotta tell, the audience what kind of show it is. And I think if you're talking about the first six episodes of Bojack Horseman, I think they don't do a great job of telling the audience what the show is. And, and part of that was by design, is, is we wanted to, to trick people 
and, and make them think it was a certain kind of thing. And then we thought they would enjoy discovering, oh, it's actually this other kind of thing. But in order to do that, the first thing has to be appetizing enough that they keep watching, right? And so I think in the short term, it did not hurt us as much as it might have if we were on a traditional network airing week to week, right? Because when you're watching BoJack Horseman, if you've heard that it 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 gets good, or even if you haven't, but if, if you're watching an episode, you're like, I don't know how I feel about this, the barrier for entry for the next episode is super small, right? It's like, it's right there before you even have time to change it, the next episode's playing. You're like, all right, I guess I'll, I'll keep watching. <laughs> and, if, and before you know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm enjoying this, right? And so I think in the short term, I think we were, we were very blessed to be on a, on a platform like Netflix. And it, it, I think, maybe got us to that second season renewal and it, it got us to, to get enough people to watch it and talk about it that we could keep going as long as we've had. However, unlike, say, you know, if you're living in the 90s uh, and you hear there's this great show, Seinfeld, and it's on Thursdays at 9 o'clock, and you're like, all right, I'm not going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to tune in this Thursday at 9 o'clock and watch the show, and then, oh, it's firing on all cylinders. Great, this is my new favorite show now, right? If you hear BoJack is good now, everybody is going to go back to that first episode again. And so it, it in, in an interesting way, short term, I think it, we were helped by the platform that we're on and the delivery system we're on. But I think long term, it's been a struggle for us because I, I think it is still hard to get new people to watch the show in a way that it wouldn't if the show was, you know, one of these less if it was less serialized if it was kind of an episode of the week kind of thing story of the week you pop into anyone and you kind of get what's happening i mean you need to you need to get through those first episodes to watch the show and so i, I think that has been it has been more of a barrier for entry long term than i realized at first you talked about you know the getting enough viewers to go on for multiple seasons yeah. obviously but i'm curious in your time at netflix what have they told you about the viewership for the show? Have they, or do they measure it with 70% of people watching one episode? Did you get two minutes of intended view? I mean, yeah, the well, I ratings are had, kind of a joke. Um, I think we had two minutes of a conversation and, and that was it. And they counted <laughs> as a full conversation. Um, no, I, they don't, I mean, they don't tell us much. I mean, like, I think we, we had a sense kind of, and you, I mean, cause I don't, I don't know, care about, personally, I don't care about numbers anyway. Like I'm very happy to not know this point, this many people viewed it, and this is the episode where they stopped watching. Like creatively, I don't know how helpful that is, right? From a creative point of view. I mean, from a business point of view, it makes things more difficult because you can't always gauge like when to ask for a raise or, you know, what kind of position are we in? But I mean, I always, I always felt like I knew my standing at Netflix. Like I knew that they liked the show and they wanted it to succeed. And I could tell that it wasn't Stranger Things for them. And then, you know, also, and then we would, um, on our own, like Tornante would like sell merchandise and we would feel like, yeah, this is not Family Guy. Like we're, <laughs> you know, it's not Rick and Morty. Like you can, we know it's a niche show um, and we have a, a, a lovely dedicated audience, but it's, it's not the kind of thing where, where anyone's backing up the money truck. You know, when they said season six is the end, it was disappointing, but it didn't come out of nowhere. You know, it never felt like we thought we were going to go on forever. You know, like, like, I mean, I felt like I had a, a, a good stance of where I stood and it was always done respectfully. I mean, I never felt like they were like hiding things from us. And again, as, as a creative, it was exactly what I wanted, which was like they gave me space to make the show I wanted to make. And I never felt the pressure of we need we need to change the show to get a bigger audience. Right. I mean, as a creator, though, what do you think of the new net Netflix measurement of 
measuring two minutes of intent to view. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't, again, like that doesn't affect me. I, I, those numbers don't affect me. Like the only thing numbers I care about is what does Netflix care about as far as bringing my show back. Right. And so what they're reporting to the press or how it gauges versus other shows on other networks. Like I understand why that is important and helpful for like business reporters, but for me, you and know, Wall Street, yeah. And Wall Street, yeah. Like, I understand why that information might frustrate people or lack of information might frustrate people. But for me as a creator, I'm just interested in, like, how am I doing for you? And am I, do you consider this successful enough to keep bringing back? And if the answer is yes, then I don't, I don't necessarily need more details than that. Well, you did have a conversation that ended with a no. You exec produced Two Ken Birdie yeah. with Lisa Hanawalt. Yeah. Um, great reviews to start. Great voice cast of Nihaj, Ali Wong canceled after one season, which yeah. was quite a surprise to a lot of people in the industry, myself included. Yeah. What was the conversation there? What happened? They didn't pick it up. That was the whole conversation. Again, I think it's, they had math, right? And they, they have numbers that, that to them, this is what a successful show is or what a show needs to be. And the math didn't work out for them on that show. And I think, you know, I think like any network, they can advocate for certain things. And I, I, I don't want to imply that the math is the only thing that matters because, you know, I know on BoJack, they were great cheerleaders of the show and, and it meant something to them, even though I don't know if the math ever quite added up for them. Yeah. And other networks, for example, FX always used to say that there, three, there were three votes that mattered. It mm -hmm. was if the pitch for the next season was good, if the yeah. network execs liked it and if critics liked it. So there were three different buckets. And if you got two out of, th out of the three, you would get a renewal. Right. So I, I don't know how Netflix makes their decisions, but I, I know that a lot of it is math. And I think the, the, the math just didn't work and they couldn't justify bringing it back, which I was really disappointed in. And I wish they could have used math to get the show to the right people. And I think sometimes I'm frustrated, not with Netflix, but with this whole industry. And I think a lot of times people work for the math instead of the math working for them. And that disappoints me. Well, Tuca and Birdie was one of two new shows last year that you sort of helped shepherd along. And I thought that was very interesting because it was you sort of using the brand of creator of BoJack Horseman to help get other voices out there. And I'm curious about the responsibility you see of doing that and being a, not just a showrunner of your own shows, but a nurturer and supporter of the people you've worked with. And uh, particularly women in animation who have had a harder time breaking through in that industry. Yes, I do feel that responsibility. And that is one of the reasons I do it is I, I want to send that elevator back down and try to bring up people who maybe have not had the the luck that I have had because I consider myself to be very lucky uh, in that, you know, I pitched the show to the right people at the right time and, and got to make what is a very strange show for six years. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with me being in the right place at the right time and me looking the right way and talking the right way um, and uh, doors opening for me that because of who I am and, and with the help of other people that maybe other people have not been able to walk through. And so I, I do consider it my responsibility to try to open those doors for other people, but I wouldn't do it unless it was fun for me and I enjoy doing it. And, and you know, um, Lisa Hanawalt, I think is brilliant, who is uh, the artist on BoJack Horseman and the creator of Tuca and Birdie. And I, you know, I'm always looking for more excuses to just be in a room with her. And I feel the same way about Kate Purdy, who is a writer on BoJack, who I co-created Undone with and now runs Undone. You know, these are, these are talents I'm really excited about. And I want to, you know, give them a megaphone and, and tell the world, hey, listen to these people because they have 
amazing stories to tell. Yeah, I mean, the animation space is exploding right now, particularly thanks to the comedies like Family Guy and Rick and Morty, which you mentioned, and certainly BoJack, because they're immediately bingeable. You know, a point you even made earlier yeah. in the conversation. What's next for you? I mean, you obviously you have season two of Undone coming, but do you have an overall deal? Is that something that's of interest to you? No. Um, I, I, I'm very commitment phobic, so I, I, I'm not necessarily... I like I like feeling like if I have an idea I can take it anywhere, and I think maybe financially that is not the best <laughs> decision because I'd probably be much richer if I if I parked somewhere and and it might be easier for me to just know like this is where I'm taking my stuff. But I like the freedom of knowing like my next thing could be a TV show or it could be a movie. I mean I wrote a book that came out last year. Maybe I want to write another book. I like feeling like. I could go off and like teach somewhere. I could write a play. Like I, you know, um, I don't necessarily know what the next thing for me is, but I, I do know that I've enjoyed working with other people. And so I think it'll be more of that. I like collaborating. I like amplifying other people's voices and, and, and helping them tell their stories. Um, and so I, I hope to be doing more of that. Well, given just that animation is such a methodical and sometimes slow process, can you imagine a world in which you would have more than just the two or three shows going at a time? Can you imagine being the Greg Berlanti of animation? Maybe. I, I, I mean, I also just don't want to just work in animation. Um, you know, I'd like to do all sorts of things. I, I think this last year when I was producing Two and Birdie and Undone and running my own show and coming out with a book was, was very difficult. Uh, and I'm, I'm not necessarily looking to take on all that again. I think when you're not running your own show, everything else becomes a little bit easier uh, because when you are the showrunner and you are kind of the last responsibility and, and you are the one who has to make sure all the scripts get done and everything happens, it's, it's hard to think or care about anything else. But I found that when I'm working with someone else and they are the showrunner and I'm an EP, that, that's a comfortable spot for me and I can come in and assist them and, and give them guidance and, and kind of lean in when I need to lean in and lean out when I need to lean out. That is easier to juggle. So if, if I'm doing more of that, I, I could conceivably do more of that for a while. Um, I think the next, the next thing I find that is like my thing alone, I think I might have to clear out other stuff to make room for that. But right now, I'm, that is not where my priorities are. One of the things that I'm really curious about, too, you know, obviously we talk about the financials of doing animation. And it, while it, it is less expensive than doing a scripted drama, live action, it, it still comes with a cost. And one of the um, there was a big deal this week that Netflix did where they signed a, an overall deal with a, an animation studio called Titmouse. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, and a lot of this too is because, you know, and this is, I, I should backtrack a little bit, but Netflix opened up and launched its own in-house animation studio because they're trying to kind of emulate the Rick and Morty formula sure. where the physical animation and the writing is all kind of done under the same well, roof. That's, but that's true. I it's mean, cost outside, more cost effective. outside of animation too, everyone wants to own their own stuff. Exactly. Right? Yes. Um, but I wonder how much did the fact that the animation was expensive and they had to outsource that. Did that play a role in Netflix's decision to cut the show? I mean, yeah, every show has costs, you know, like. Do you think every... it would have continued on if the animation was something that they did in-house and a little bit cheaper? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think the entire show you could probably make for the same cost as Ryan Murphy's wig budget. So like, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know how these decisions get made. Yeah. Um, it was a very inside baseball question, but I don't, I mean, I, and I'm not privy to those conversations and I don't try to be because I, I don't, you know, I think in some ways I'd probably, 
be better off if I paid closer attention to that stuff. But I, I think for me, I'm just mostly interested in the creative and I want to tell stories and, and, and make stuff. And I, you know, again, maybe this is my own commitment phobia, but like I, I'm nervous about making a show for a network that also owns the show because then if they cancel the show, then that's it. Right. I, I, you know, I like the scrappiness of like a Sony that can like go to a network and the network says you're done. And the Sony goes, okay, who else wants it? Right. You know, which like, they famously did with one day at a time and set a right. new, I mean, I mean that was all first, like, right. But like, that was the first time it went from a streaming to platform Netflix, to the other way. Sure. Instead of, you know, right. And so it makes me nervous of like having all my things on one thing. That said, I mean, I love Netflix. I love working with Netflix. Like I've never had a better relationship with the creative executives. Um, I don't think I would have been able to make BoJack or necessarily to Birdie the way we wanted to make it anywhere else. And so, you know, if, if there are ways that I could work with them more and have and make more shows for them and make them for longer, you know, I'd certainly be open to considering that because it's been a great place for me. I have a couple sort of big picture Bojack questions sure. uh, from the, the 20,000 foot view, as it were. Um, I feel like a lot of the talk of the show focuses on the certain high concept episodes, the fish out of water or escape from LA. Do you have a favorite episode or two that people don't mention enough? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't like to play favorites, uh, but, and you know, and, and we kind of know like going as we're breaking a season, like we know like, Oh, this is going to be an episode everyone talks about. But I would say the the other less concepty episodes are, you know, just as much love goes into them. And there's, I think, from the creative standpoint, just as much to love in those. And in some ways, they're harder because, you know, there's not the easy hook of like, okay, the story's going to resolve around this. It's like, all right, well, we got three, you know, stories we need to push forward this many inches at this point in the season. How do we make that compelling and not just feel like it's a chapter of the season, but make it feel like an episode in its own right? How are you juggling between the things? What is the thematic connections? So, you know, when I first made, started the show, uh, one of my goals with the show is I said, I want every episode of this season to be somebody's favorite episode. I don't want to have any episodes that feel like, okay, that was kind of a filler episode. And that, that was my goal. And going into every season, that's my goal, is I want 12 winners, or in the case of this last season, 16 winners. And, you know, some turn out better than others, and you can't always control that. And then, But everyone does have their own favorites, and it is highly subjective. And so every once in a while, I'll meet someone, they'll say, my favorite episode is such and such. And like, oh, you were the first person who's ever told me that was their favorite. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, and so... Yeah, we, we absolutely, I, I don't think of the show in terms of like the concept episodes and the regular episodes. Okay. Another picking favorites episode. What is your favorite thing that you've gotten a celebrity to do that you can't believe <laughs> a celebrity actually came on and was willing to do? Um, I mean, we've, we've since gotten much crazier stuff, but I always go back to the very beginning where like the first, I mean, he's not even playing himself, but Keith Olbermann playing Tom Jumbo Grumbo was like the first name guest star we got like we got him even before we sold the show we made like a pilot presentation um and he was in that so like keith olman's doing this cartoon whale and um the character was described in the script as like keith olman but a whale and our casting director was like do you want to just go to keith olman <laughs> i was like there's no way he's gonna want to do this uh and he was like really excited about it and he's been a huge supporter of the show and like really happy to be involved with it for six seasons now but you know the first time we got him we, you know, we read all the lines and, and we record and he's, you know, such a pro. And then after we got the lines, I said, um, can I also get you making some whale noises? Uh, <laughs> and it was over the phone. He's in New York. And so, and then I just, there's a pause 
and then I hear I'm like, that's that's Keith Olbermann. <laughs> that's like, how dare you, sir? Have you no decency, Keith Olbermann going? <laughs> and so like everything since that that's everything since then's been gravy. Like that's like, oh, this show's gonna be fun. And it was. And no one subsequently has been like, like Marco Martindale hasn't said, why are you so fascinated with me? Or Zach Braff hasn't said, why did you want to kill me? <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe they have. Yeah, there definitely have been some stars who come in. They're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I said yes to this. I remember Wallace Shawn was in the first season. And so I think the guest stars in the first season, I really have to hand it to because we were a real unknown quantity. Um, you know, in season two, like we got like Daniel Radcliffe, who I think had seen the show and was a fan. They kind of knew what they were getting into. But those first season guest stars, I'm like, why are they doing this? And um, Wallace Shawn... He was, I think he was like on vacation in Spain and like he took a, like a train to get to the recording studio. Like he really like went out of his way for us and I, I can't believe he did. And he's so funny and so great in the episode, but literally like the first thing he said and we like picked up the phone, like after I introduced myself, he said, um, well, I guess if Naomi Watts can put up with this foolishness, I can too. <laughs> the fact that Naomi Watts was also in the script, I think is what made him realize like, all right, I guess I can. Do this bizarre thing. And one of the sort of frustrations or sad fascinations is Will Arnett not having gotten an Emmy nomination so far for voicing the main title character, obviously, with this being sort of the last chance. Do you have a plea on his behalf that you want to make for all the Academy members who clearly listen to this podcast? Sure. I mean, he's the best. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I always get uncomfortable when we talk about awards because... I don't really care. I, I mean, we just won uh, an Annie Award uh, this last week for, for BoJack and another Annie Award for, for Tuca and Birdie, which was great. But, like, I'd never heard of the Annie Awards before we started making cartoons. And I couldn't tell you who has won the Emmy Awards for best voiceover performance in an animated show for the last five years that we've been on the air. So... It is, yeah, it is nicer to win than not win. And I think if the Emmys or the Emmy voters would like to think of themselves as a true document of the best shows of the year and the best performances of the year, I would advise you give Will Arnett a listen because I think he is doing incredible work on the show. I mean, we couldn't make the show if not for Will Arnett. I mean, he, he brings so much comedy to the role, but also so much pathos and tragedy and... The fact that he's able to do so much is pretty unbelievable and gives us such confidence to, to write the show that we write. And if we were writing for a lesser talent, we wouldn't take some of the risks that we do. So I think having him has made the show so much better, and I'm happy with that. And yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't mind having an Emmy nomination even, but that's up to the people who give out Emmys. Um, one thing we always like to end this segment with is to hear what you're watching and what are you loving? Well, I love Cheer. Um, I loved John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. You know what I really love that no one ever talks about is uh, Penn and Teller Fool Us. It's like one of my favorite shows on television. And it's like maybe not hip. I mean, it's also it's like the opposite of what I do because it's like I watch it in standalone segments. I rarely watch full episodes. I just like pull up a clip and like watch a segment of Penn and Teller Fool Us between things, you know, and it's great. I mean, I love Under a Rock with Tignataro on YouTube. 
like most of what I watch now is kind of maybe what you'd call like between things television. Like I know succession is fabulous, but like, I don't have an hour to watch a thing, but like, Oh, 20 minutes. Like, yeah, I can watch another episode of, I think you should leave. And again, it kills me because like, that's not the TV I write. Like I make shows that like are involved and serialized and I want your full attention. I want you to like sit down and like watch the show uh, and think about what you're watching. But if I look at my own habits, I go, Oh, you know, I might be the target audience for Quibi. Like that might I was be, just going to make that joke. Yeah. I, I, I know you guys like to laugh about it, but like <laughs> I see the appeal and it scares me because I also don't know if I would ever make a show for Quibi because it, but wait, I, you mean you don't have one yet? No, I don't. Are you, <laughs> Not that are I know you sure? Okay. It's possible. I do. I'll, I'll call, I'll call my, uh, my lawyer after this, this interview and just double check. Um, but I, I, I kind of understand the appeal. Like, yes, we're busy people. And sometimes we do just want to like knock something out quickly, but I hope more networks also continue to make deep involved serialized stories and <laughs> long cause, form. Yeah. Cause those are the stories that I want to keep telling. Well, we thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Oh, thank you. What a, what a joy. The last episodes of Bojack Horseman are now streaming on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week, Dan, it's a ton of mid-season debuts, plus a little thing called the Super Bowl. So lots of things to get into. Of course, the final season of BoJack Horseman, which we just had Raphael on, McMillions on HBO, Manhunt, Deadly Games, which moves to Spectrum Originals, Deezus and Marrow returns for its second season on Showtime, The Masked Singer gets TV's biggest time slot and returns for its third season after the Super Bowl, Fox debuts unscripted competition series Lego Masters, hosted by Will Arnett. CBS All Access has the very interesting drama called Interrogation, where you can watch episodes in any order whatsoever. The new season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, one of my favorites, comes out. Riverdale offshoot Katie Keene makes its debut on The CW. The USA returns the new season of Anthology The Sinner. And the new season of Sam Ismail, exec produced Briar Patch debuts. And then over at CBS, Edie Falco plays LA's first female LAPD captain and a lesbian on CBS's Tommy. And then NBC has a new comedy co- with Fran Drescher and Adam Polly. There, dude, there is a lot Good this week. God, stop with the TV, Leslie. How much of this stuff did you watch, Dan? I watched really a lot of it. Uh, our our colleague Ingu King will have reviewed Interrogation and Katie Keene. So as of this moment, I have no opinion on those. I feel like we've talked enough about the Super Bowl, which of course will be the biggest TV show people are talking about this week. So anyway, there are definitely shows that you just listed that are well worth watching. You obviously just listened to our segment with Raphael Bob Waxberg and the last eight episodes of BoJack Horseman are are often lovely, often sad, often funny. They're basically a representative end of the series. Uh, I was struck a few times by episodes that were steering into the seriousness and the sadness. And then I had to stop and say to myself, wait, did you seriously think that this was a show that was just going to go out entirely in a torrent of puns and ha 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 Hollywood satire? No, that's not what the show was. So it is an appropriate and tonally correct end for the series is all I will say. Uh, what else is coming out next week? I reviewed McMillions on HBO. That was time to its uh, Sundance premiere. 
And it is a fantastic story about the rigging of the McDonald's Monopoly game in the 90s. And this explains why I never won. This explains why none of us ever won is the basic answer. We would all get our free fries and our free drinks and we'd be like, okay, that's enough. And then we'd all be looking at our our boards going, God, I'm missing that one piece I need for every single one of them. What's up with that? Well, the answer apparently is that a lot of the pieces were being sold and transported through literally the mob. And it is a fascinating story. It is not a great documentary. It it has it suffers from a little bit too much reenactmentitis, which uh, if you watch as many nonfiction programs as I do, it has become the bane of my existence in the past few years. People using reenactments and not doing anything creative with them, and that is unfortunately a serious problem with McMillions. But it's such a good story, and the characters who are on camera are so fascinating that. It's still totally watchable. I just couldn't help thinking at almost every turn that if someone had had a good idea, like, let's do the reenactments animated. Let's do the reenactments literally like a heist movie. Let's do anything creative with the reenactments at all. It could have been a great show. And so minor disappointment there. Um, Let's see. We've made fun of Spectrum Originals a number of times on this podcast, mostly the confusion of what it is, who has access to it, and why it is. Uh, The latter specifically. And what I will say is Manhunt Mind Games is the first Spectrum Originals program that I'm actually going to give a, a recommendation to, that I'm going to give a positive response to it is and this is the the it's an anthology and the first season aired on what discovery yes the and then first, discovery pulled out of scripted exactly the first season was the unabomber season with paul bettany on discovery and it was also a really solid basically elaborate game of cat and mouse that was about procedure and was about the complications of the intelligence apparatus when it comes to tracking down one of these most wanted criminals this one is the latest telling of the Somewhat Richard Jewell story, somewhat Eric Robert Rudolph story, uh, basically relating to serial bombings and most high profilely the Olympic bombing in Atlanta in 1996. And it is similar to the first season in that it's just a solid, smartly told story with some really good performances. Uh, Cameron Britton from Mind Hunters. That's what that one is called, the David Fincher show. Come on, Leslie. Mine Hunter. Yes, Mine Hunter. I combine these two, and this is not helping having Cameron Britton in both. He plays Richard Jewell, and it's it's a remarkable performance. He is he is so good, uh, and you forget the fact that he's this gigantic hulk of a man, and you really fully believe him as this sad wannabe hero who got railroaded by a lot of forces outside of his control. It's a great performance. Arliss Howard, uh, who everyone should love from the one season of Rubicon that existed, he gives a great performance. It's solid. It's not great. I'm not going to tell you that you need to move to a city that has Spectrum if you don't live in a city with Spectrum. I'm not going to tell you to change your cable provider if you have somebody else as your cable provider. But if you have Spectrum and if you liked the first season of Manhunt, it's it's really solid. And so there's that. What else is coming out? I feel like there were like there's 750 lot, things you listed. What else? Mid-season on broadcast really kicks off. So Tommy with Edie Falco on CBS, Indebted, and then a couple new shows on USA Network. Uh, CBS All Access is Interrogation, so which many, is, it was interesting at TCA. They were questioned a lot about the structure of the show and 
I think that someone else is reviewing that. Yes, uh, Ingu is reviewing that one. And so. And then um, my favorite is Brooklyn Nine-Nine returns for its new season. And uh, you should definitely look forward to next week's interview with Dan Gore, that show's showrunner. It is a great conversation about a show that we both enjoy very much. So, yeah, the, and we've seen a couple episodes of it. And guess what? It's, it's Brooklyn great. Nine-Nine. So. Nine-Nine. Yeah, of the new broadcast shows, there's honestly nothing that you need to watch. The first episode of Tommy on CBS is good. The show was created by Paul Atanasio, who is extremely talented. Paul Atanasio basically created the show and then wasn't involved after that. And the second episode falls off in quality extremely dramatically. I don't remember the last time with a broadcast show that I went from being as excited to being hugely disappointed as I was with that one. So that's nuts considering it's Edie Falco and who is, who is quite solid. It's a really, it's a good cast pretty much top to bottom. And I still need to watch one more episode because maybe the third episode will tip the pendulum one way or the other. Maybe there was just a, a kind of drop in quality between the first and second episodes and it'll bounce back. But I was disappointed by that. Indebted is is a mess. And despite <laughs> having Stephen Weber and Fran Drescher and Adam Pally and Abby Elliott, who are all extremely talented in various different ways, it has barely any premise and it can't even be bothered to stick to what its premise is. They sent out three episodes. The third episode wasn't bad. So that's what I'll say. That's the what first, you want to hear from a review. Uh, what can I say? I can't be more enthusiastic than that. The third episode had a structure had a point of view. It wasn't funny, but I sort of could look at that episode and go, okay, here are people trying to do things. The first two episodes were not funny and just pretty much bad. And that's fairly hard given how good all of those stars are. And Briar Patch is interesting. It's this is the Sam Ismail show. Starring Rosario Dawson. It is a sort of pulpy Southwestern set show about the investigation of a murder and uh, it was created by Andy Greenwald, who uh, podcasting people will know from podcasts and also TV criticism and whatnot. And it has it has moments. I, I don't think it's quite as pulpy and fun and weird as it really wants to be. I, I feel like it should probably it should probably, as the cliche goes, go to 11, and instead I would say it probably goes to a 6 or 7, and it feels more muted than it should be. But Rosario Dawson is solid. Uh, J.R. Ferguson bringing back his Stan Beard from Mad Men is a lot of fun. There, there are things, and I think some people will really enjoy it. And it's closed-ended. It's an anthology. So that's a plus. So yes, good God, Leslie, that's too much TV. I don't know how people do it. I don't know how I do it. And there's going to be more TV next week. Yes. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. As Dan mentioned, we will be back next week when we will be joined by Brooklyn Nine-Nine co-creator and showrunner Dan Gore. You can subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review. It helps spread the word of mouth. Uh, come say hi to us on the Twitter. We're always happy to see you. We're always happy to hear your questions, comments, and concerns. But as I always say, if you have real questions, you should send them to us because we like to do mailbag segments. You can reach us at tbstop5 at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 